0: Hello, everyone, and thank you for listening to the Fabrication Friday podcast. I'm your host, Joe Fairley, certified prosthetist, 3D printing enthusiast, and owner of Ascent Fabrication. Fabrication Friday is an all-around fun time where I talk about 3D printing applications, conduct interviews with industry leaders, and much more. Come join us every Friday for an informational discussion around the evolution of the additive manufacturing field and how we utilize various digital workflows and 3D printing methods in our daily work at Ascent Fabrication. All right. How's it going, everyone? Joe Fairley here from Ascent Fabrication. You're uh, watching and tuning into the Fabrication Friday podcast. Uh, it's July somehow. Uh, we're we're more than halfway through the year. It feels like the first half of the year has flown by. Um, and in July, I have to give some thanks and kudos to the O&P Edge magazine. Uh, for those who are watching the video right now, Holding up their July issue, Uh, we've got the front page, uh, two of our sockets, the FoamFlex Air socket and a test socket base mode printed uh, from PETG Filament Innovations, uh, High Flow FDM printers. Go check out Filament Innovations. Got to plug them all the time. Uh, But thank you to the O&P Edge for um, this uh, cover. That's beautiful. Thank you very much for that. Um, Judith Phillips Auto. Uh, did a an interview with me, and a lot of the uh, interview was used in this definitive uh, article. So taking a look at what constitutes a definitive lower limb prosthetic socket. Um, right now, no standards exist for a definitive laminated carbon fiber socket to test it. Um, so there has been a little bit more in terms of actual uh, cyclic testing that has gone on. Um, There is a uh, multidisciplinary team from AOPA, the American Orthotic and Prosthetic Association, uh, the Socket Guidance Work Group. And the Socket Guidance Work Group, I know, is led by a number of individuals, um, one of which, uh, name dropping here, Jeff Aaronstone, CPO, Um, and uh, 3D printing uh, enthusiasts, uh, very knowledgeable in that regard. And they have started to do some type of cyclic testing on what constitutes a definitive socket because having something now 3D printed, um, one of the biggest questions that we get out of scent fabrication is, well, okay, you can print this device, what materials are it made out of, and how long does it last? Um, So if you're looking for a nice article uh, that is written from a number of different individuals in the field who are very knowledgeable on um, on 3D printing in general and how we're using it in a clinical sense. Uh, please take a look at the July issue of the ONP Edge Magazine. So thanks again to Judith uh, for interviewing for me interviewing me for that article. Um, and today I have the uh, esteemed pleasure of bringing on Mitch Deborah here, the uh, uh, co-founder and CEO of Mosaic Manufacturing. Uh, Mosaic Manufacturing has uh, a lot going on right now, some exciting new stuff uh, with 3D printers, other uh, other additions to 3D printers that could be used. Um, so thanks again, Mitch, for coming on today.
1: Thanks for having me, Joe. Excited to talk about uh, the state of 3D printing and, and where things are heading.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, with that in mind, um, where did you, you know, kind of get involved with the 3D printing industry in general? What, when was that? How was that? How did that come about?
1: It's a good question. I think I have one of those kind of classic founder stories of discovering a problem and then, uh, before you know it, trying to solve it. Um, Takes me back, actually, I think it's 12 or 13 years ago. Uh, I was studying mechanical engineering, and in one of the courses, in one random moment, The prof had a slide up and they said, you know, rapid prototyping using 3D printing. And I was like, what does that mean? I I didn't know what a 3D printer was. No one talked about it. And I started doing a lot of Googling and I found, you know, I got really lucky with timing. MakerBot was just coming out. Printers were just getting a lot more affordable and I became pretty obsessed with it. I needed to find a way to buy one. So having grown up in kind of an entrepreneurial household, I, I saw it as an opportunity. What if I buy a printer? I saw the value right away. Start a Wix website, you know, position myself as, as someone who can print as a service, and saved up some money. Did that. Got my first uh, Maker Gear M2 in my dorm room at Queens University, and started, you know, printing for students and professors. And before I knew it, automotive and medical companies were buying parts, and I, I got to really sort of buy, you know, pay for that printer and really discover the power of three D printing, but also some of the limitations. And the first one that really caught my attention was the single material limitation of most FFF printers. Mm -hmm. There was this one time when a a customer, they were an automotive company and they said, I will pay you 10 times as much if you can print this part in three colors. They needed that for a a safety standard. And I said, I would love to print you this $3,000 part, but printers don't do that. Even dual extrusion, it's not very reliable. So I had to say no. And that kind of in some ways became the impetus for starting Mosaic.
0: That's awesome. Yeah. I mean, with the, uh, you know, the FDM layer by layer approach, single nozzle extrusion um, with the uh, the consumer level desktop printers that initially came on the market. You know, I think that spurred a lot of uh, aha moments and interest in a lot of people. It sure did for me as well. You know, had a very interesting, you know, kind of upbringing in that sense. Um, you know, so with that, you know, the you said the the Prusa the MK MK2, was that it? That was the first printer you had? Sorry, actually,
1: even before I think Prusas were popularized, this was the Maker Gear M2 Maker, yeah. Maker Gear company out of Ohio. And um, yeah, made yeah. a really you know, bulletproof printer and it was great.
0: Nice, nice. So was that uh, the only printer that you were using at that time? Did you add on a, a second printer or how did that kind of develop as you started to take on more clients?
1: It was. It's funny, actually, I hadn't thought about this in a long time, but at the university they had a couple you know really expensive you know the kind of printer where a spool of abs is 350 bucks and so i would try and leverage that but i often found they would actually send jobs to me because they're like you know um no, no one wants to print when, when it's this expensive and and uh so i would try and leverage the university resources a bit where possible for student projects but that ended up coming full circle to me printing them um When we eventually started Mosaic, we we joined a startup incubator at at the university and and looked at problems we wanted to solve, and multicolor 3D printing uh, became the start of that. So I think we then went out and bought a couple more low-cost printers um, for the very, very pragmatic purpose of being able to, one, develop our our products, and two, test our products, because, as I, I think you know, one of the first products we came out with was called Palette. And our go-to-market strategy on that was very different than just making a printer. Instead, we made an accessory that can be used with almost any printer in the market. So, you know, if you own a printer, you can add a palette to it and it brings multicolor, multi-material 3D printing to that printer. Um, we're on our fifth generation today. It's called Palette 3. It's, it's on the market. There's tens of thousands of these out in the world. So, uh, spoiler, um, you know, it was, it was a long, challenging journey, but we were able to kind of develop the IP, bring that product to market. And... and develop a dominant market share uh for that uh, to this day
0: that is that is really cool um you know again multi-color 3d printing is is pretty interesting um there aren't many printers you know really on the market from fdm all the way up to mjf that can really do it um you know not to mention that uh hp just pulled their full color printer from the from production so you know, uh, take me through that initial thought of, um, you know, trying to even go through slicing and the G-code for, you know, multicolor 3D printing as much as you can tell me. I know there's a lot of IP wrapped up in it, but.
1: Yeah, no. Um, it's funny. I'll start by saying, you know, uh, feedback we often got from early people we spoke to, whether it be investors or people in the space, you know, or not in the space, they'd say, you know, it seems so obvious course, multicolor should be a thing in 3D printing. You know, why has no one else done it? We, we don't understand how you're going to be able to do it, but no one else has. Right. And it was kind of a devil and a curse um, to, to find that it was such a challenging problem to solve. You just pointed out, you know, the software, the slicing, the workflows, the integrations, the hardware, the, the certifications that you name it, you know, they say hardware is hard. And, building a profitable hardware business is, is, I think Elon Musk said is uh, next to impossible. Um, So it was really challenging, but I think we had just such an amazing uh, focus group of people that I was lucky to work with on this and a group of mentors and advisors who could help us navigate the challenges of product development, manufacturing, fundraising, uh, IP, you name it. And once we kind of got that escape velocity, we, we launched a Kickstarter campaign raised just under a quarter million dollars. And that's when it all became very real. Um, But the crazy thing is, you know, that feels kind of like yesterday, but that was actually nine years ago. Um, And, you know, I think potentially even more relevant to the market of today would be jumping forward to maybe about five years ago, where we started to see something interesting, which is that, and I, I think there's many company stories where this happened, you know, a customer started using your product for something you didn't intend.
0: Right, yeah.
1: For us, you know, yes, palette is marketed and, and and designed for multicolor, multi-material, but inherently it's also automating the changing of filament. That's what it does, yeah. right? And so we started to see a trend. First it was one, then it was five, then it was 20 companies who were buying not one palette, but many palettes, attaching it to many of their printers, whether it be high-end industrial printers or low-cost, you know, uh, $300 Creality Ender 3 kind of things. And the reason they were buying it is because they were building farms of printers to yeah. scale 3d printing into production and they realized that you know a person going in to collect parts to harvest parts from the printers that's one thing but if the person also has to go automatically change the filament over at unpredictable times mm-hmm. the labor is so significant that the costs of the farm are really high so they were buying pallet to automate the changing of filament and that very much became um, a critical moment for us as a company realizing that we could have an important part to play in this automation and scaling of 3D printing uh, but you know that was really just a portion of it and with our array product that i, I can tell you some more about we yeah. really went all in to solving this problem of automated scalable 3D printing
0: that is that is so neat so yeah that uh, what you mentioned there with having a product out there where people you know are doing something different than you intended it's used to be i think that's almost just inherent to 3D printing now you know, we're, we're kind of finding different ways to use the printers for different things. Um, you know, we've got, uh, a lot of that kind of going on in the prosthetics and orthotics field too, where we're manipulating different designs and different printers to do different things than some people otherwise intended them to be used for. Um, so with the, uh, the automation of, uh, you know, automatic filament changing, that is, that is definitely something that, us as a central fabricator, you know, a service contractor, we're going to be, you know, growing into the need for that um, already. You know, there's there's been times where, you know, filament sensors are sometimes inherently unstable and unpredictable. Um, you know, I'd, I'd love to just be able to continue an entire print uh, and not have to worry about that material running out, right? Um, so that, that's in that sense of, you know, they were running through kilogram after kilogram of material,
1: you got it. That's exactly it. It's the, you know, don't get me wrong. The run out switch is, is much better than nothing. Um, but you know, as you know, uh, if you don't catch that within, you know, 10, 20 minutes, the, 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 thermodynamic process, it, you know, you go out of equilibrium and before you know it, now that part of the print is cooler, uh, than when it starts back up and that next layer becomes hotter. So you will end up with defects, structural imperfections, cosmetic imperfections. So right. using palette, you were able to splice one end of a filament to the end of, sorry, the, the beginning of a new spool to the end of the old spool, having uninterrupted continuous printing, okay. um, you know, meaning from the printer's perspective, nothing ever happened. It's just kind of this infinite spool. And and yeah, it, it was kilogram after kilogram, um, but in all fairness, you know, palette was not initially built for that. Um, and so really lucky that we were able to leverage it for that purpose. but as people started getting into, you know, more industrial grade materials, uh, carbon fiber reinforced nylons or or others, uh, some really abrasive materials, or even high-end materials like Peak pack Ultim that have such high uh, temperatures, we reached the limits of what pallet, at least the current generation of pallet can do. Um, So in the array product, we ended up developing what we call pallet X, and it's really the industrialized version Uh, It doesn't rely on, on a thermal process. Um, It's, it's a lot more friendly and universal to different materials, more friendly for flexible filaments uh, and gives us a lot more opportunity. That was only possible because we kind of made that leap from making an accessory to other printers to building it into our own printer, which gave us a lot more flexibility. And, and, you know, you know, like they say, when you're designing something for everybody, sometimes they kind of comes um not really specialized to any of them individually but designing it to be integrated into our element 3D printer we were able to get a lot of efficiencies and 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 just achieve simplicity which is good for reliability
0: right yeah i mean having that uh option just to be able to go through all those different materials um you know the the ups and downs of printing with tpu and flexible materials or those high end materials you know again you're you're coming up with those problems that you didn't initially anticipate people having but um, when people push your your designs and your hardware to the limits, those things are brought up. Um, so was that where Element came from initially? Was, you know, you had the palette and then you, you came up with Element as a separate standalone um, or did that kind of develop with the array as well?
1: Yeah, yeah. So we were actually, uh, we were in Chicago working with a, a technology incubator there and thinking about how we can have drive bigger impact and and help have a bigger impact. Um, And that was where it kind of all clicked in. Like I was saying before, we were seeing people buy pallet for scaled 3d printing and automated filament changeover. And we, we kind of, as a thought experiment said, let's, let's go down that road for a moment. What would that look like? You know, back to first principles, how do you, can 3d printing scale just asking that question and why sadly, when we heard from so many of those companies, did they not succeed in scaling 3D printing, even with our palette? And I think really it came down to using printers that were fundamentally designed for human operation uh, and and not high volume human operation um, to try and scale them. And, you know, not the best example, but it's almost like if you had to feed a banquet hall of 500 people, you probably wouldn't buy a bunch of microwave ovens. That's just... You could, right. That's probably not a, a, the right uh, approach technologically. And it felt like the same thing in 3D printing, using desktop, usually very low-end printers to try and achieve industrial outcomes. So we looked at it and we said, what if you had a cost-effective industrial-grade printer? If you automated the three most laborious parts, so build plate loading and changing, material changing, and monitoring, mm-hmm. you know, the the classic looking over, looking in the window, how's it going? Right. If you can complete those three things, you really only leave labor for maintenance, um, material restock, and harvesting of your finished prints and moving them to the next part of the assembly line, which any manufacturing process is going to have those three things effectively. Um, so we really do get to that industrial grade of, um, of, of production process. Uh, so then we looked, okay, how do you accomplish that? What do you need? And you know, five years later, I'm I'm incredibly proud and uh, humbled to be able to uh, have Array in market and be able to show it off to customers and, and see it in their factories working. Um, and so we kind of learned the recipe there was uh, robotic automation, so kind of pick and place style automation to first of all change out build plates. Mm-hmm. So with Array right now, there's a, what we call the storage cart. It has two sections. One section is empty build plates. It stores forty of them. Uh, And then we have this um, pick and place robot that goes over, it grabs an empty build plate, it moves it over, puts it into a a 3D printer uh, that's baked into the array system. It'll actually close a door, heat up the chamber, do all those preparatory steps that are needed, run the print, monitor the print. If anything goes wrong, uh, identify that, flag that, pause, remove the print. Um, But most of the time things go right. It'll take that finished print, put it onto a shelf in that storage cart and then run the process again. Mm -hmm. And that's really when you're in the office, you know, you can be focused on more productive things like working with clients, innovation, developing IP, uh, growing a business rather than doing those kind of monotonous steps. But it's even more powerful, you know, at 2 a.m. or on the weekend or, you know, on the 4th of July on a long weekend when uh, those systems are usually down. Um, A lot of our customers report that in the absence of automation, they struggle to reach more than 40 percent utilization of their printer. Um, and so that means that with the array, because we can reach you know north of 95% utilization, each printer actually acts like 2.5 printers. And so the array, which has four printers in it, acts more like 10, thanks to that automation. And you start layering all these things on, the automated build plate changing, giving you more utilization, the automated material changing, meaning that you don't have to have somebody there, um, you don't run out of filament to, to stop a print, the monitoring, the true scalability, um, you really get to a system that um, that has a much lower cost per part and a much easier scalability factor when you need to get to 10 or 20 or 50, or in the case of one of our biggest customers, scaling to over 300 arrays. Uh, these are, you know there's some line in the sand where you go from prototyping to production. And I think it's right. when you're at 300 arrays, 1200 printers, 9,000 material pods, uh, over 10 million print hours a year. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's well into that barrier of, of, of true production using 3d printing.
0: Absolutely. I mean, that's, that's what we're trying to push here at Ascent Fab as well is that, you know, this can be used for production. We just need those very specific tools and automated processes in order to help us get there. Right. So Um, yeah, when I first saw the array, um, I kind of likened it to, uh, this industrial vending machine. Um, so kind of just for, you know, visualization purposes, you know, can you kind of describe, you know, what this array looks like, how big is it, you know, what kind of different moving parts are there?
1: That's exactly. Yeah. The, a 3d printing vending machine, I think is a perfect visual. Um, others will also say it's kind of, you know, a 3d printing factory in a box. So you go over and you, you put filament in the material pods and you put them in and you come back and you have this storage cart, kind of like a cafeteria tray style. Every layer of the tray has build plates full of parts. Um and so it it really, you know, it brings your cost per printing hour significantly lower than what's achievable on a manual system, certainly lower than what's achievable on, you know, the the old quarter million dollar industrial printer. Um and it's really interesting, you know we are we are not the first company to achieve uh, commercial success with uh um scaled 3d printing certainly if we look at some of the important you know cases even a decade ago uh the work that 3d systems and stratasys and Labs have done in and others in uh usually small high end customized products so think dental aligners mm-hmm. think jewelry um those have been really perfect use cases because there's a high margin, there's a high need for customiz- customization, and they were able to overcome the in, the old kind of milling laborious process. Um, I, I think the work that that in, in O&P as well, it kind of is a, is a step in the, in a, a huge step in the right direction in that the scale is much bigger, um, the value is still high, but it's not astronomically high. In, in fact, 3D printing is doing it in a more cost-effective way than the old milling methods. But what I think, you know, it's really important for a lot of the industry who has a preconceived notion about 3D printing and where that lot, the limit will be, where it'll stop making sense and you have to go to manual methods or injection molding or CNC machining. Um it's it's the fact that with array, we get to that next order of magnitude where you know I'm gonna hold up a part here that I know most won't be able to see. It's kind of a, a bit of a boring part. It's a it's a, a manifold connector, um, you know, that's two different materials. Uh this type of part traditionally would be injection molded, but for companies that don't have that scale to get to, you know, 50000 or $100,000 of tooling or don't ever need to make more than $1,000, uh, 3 d printing was was always an exciting option, but it wasn't cost effective because, you know, it might be 20 or $30 apart. Now that we can do this for, you know, $0.40, cents, $0.80 cents apart, you really do get to that point where the break even to injection molding gets up to 20, 30, 40,000 pieces. Mm-hmm. And it starts to make you question, why would we ever injection mold this? Unless, right. of course, you need to. So my point being that, you know, if we look at the first use cases of 3D printing for production, they were very specialized, very niche, very lucky, you know, high high margin, small. Then we're seeing this shift over to O&P and um, uh, automotive and, and certain lower volume applications where there's high customization. But we're very close, and I think Mosaic is pioneering the use for, very high volume, sometimes boring internal components of parts, uh, where it's true supply chain, true manufacturing, and that's a key building block to allow companies to onshore their their supply chain in in the US and Canada and Europe, uh, and kind of break the mold of the classic, let's design it locally, send that IP overseas, and then get the product back via shipping container months later, very wasteful, not great for the environment. Um, so this is a key building block to truly allow it to be a, a supply chain input uh, to bring manufacturing back onshore.
0: Right. Yeah. You're having more companies, you know, bring that vertical in-house now, you know, having all that production be done under one roof is definitely useful for, um, you know, financial reasons, obviously in turnaround time um, and hopefully being a little bit more green to the environment, you know, only using the material that we need and uh, not, you know, doing subtractive manufacturing in that way, in that sense. Um, so with the, with thinking about, so there, there were, was it four elements in the, in the array and what's the build volume of an element?
1: Yeah. Um, so we kind of reached to make sure that it was quite big, um, but not too big to the point where it's, it's, uh, it's not worth the money for most people. So it's 14 inches cubed or 355 millimeters cubed. Okay. Uh, so pretty significant. Um, but, um, you know, maybe the 5% that need something bigger will, will often break their parts up, uh, parallelize production, maybe do post post uh, print assembly on the own P side. Uh, perfect for any type of um, uh, orthotic, um, some prosthetics, lower limb, uh, we don't quite have the Z height. So that's not something that we focus on. I see sure. the the film innovations printer behind you is, is perfect. Right. I think Mike and the team have done a great job on that. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, it's so, it's so interesting. Uh, we had we had a, a group by yesterday taking a tour of our office, and in the office here in, in Toronto, we have four arrays, and one array is is printing textiles for um, an emblem application. The next array is printing peak. To print uh, aerospace uh, samples, validation, uh, working through a process with the company. Uh, The next array is printing um, fire uh, retardant, uh, I think it's uh, polycarbonate parts as an input to a a manufacturing run. And then the next array is doing uh, a job for uh, an educational group who has an array, but has overflow capacity. They needed us to help them out and get some student print jobs done. So it's it's that versatility um, of, of what it can be used for, because at the end of the day, while we sometimes talk about verticals, 3D printing itself is a horizontal, right? It's a manufacturing technology. It can be applied to many different applications. And something we wanted to figure out, back to your question, what's the right build volume? What are the right feature sets to build into a product that make it worthwhile for most people to invest in because it's useful for most of them? So multi-material, automation, a big build volume, uh, high temperature, heated chamber. Those are some of the core aspects that we felt were kind of common to most applications and adding value. Um, and then over time, of course, we'll, we'll bolster all of those things and get faster, get bigger, um, these things that are core to the objective of getting the cost of a part down and the throughput of the system up so that per square foot of factory space, uh, it becomes even more competitive with other options.
0: Right, right. And then if you have you know some taller parts being printed, um, where where the build plate goes out from the printer section and goes into the the storage section. What is kind of that limitation then of like how many tall parts can you fit in the storage section before you have to interfere with the printer? Yeah,
1: that's a great question. That was a key design spec. So our goal uh, that we targeted was 72 hours of what we call lights out production. So kind of a manufacturing term, um, meaning that you know the lights are off in the factory, nobody is there, the system is able to, to run itself Uh, for that period of time. Uh, Ultimately, it depends on what you're printing. There is this kind of self-regulating principle that generally bigger, taller things will take longer um, and uh, smaller, uh, lower things might print faster. um, And that's self-regulating in that when you look at that storage cart, uh, which has about a meter and a half of height of storage and then it's double depth. So you effectively get three meters of Z height of storage. Um, you know, if you're printing something small, you'll probably put more of them on the bed and effectively buying you more storage capacity because your density is higher. Uh, So it really does depend on the customer and their application and um, through the process when customers are are, are scaling their factory with Array, our team is, you know, deeply knowledgeable on all this. We have models we can work with them on to understand um, and to give you a sense. In some cases, they'll get a full week of Lights Out production where they don't have to touch it. Whereas in other cases, um, for example, uh, 3D printing service providers, uh, they don't really want to let the parts sit in that storage cart for more than 12 hours, even because they want to ship it and get paid uh, and get it to their customers as fast as possible. So, um, you know, they might uh, be printing and speccing out their parts to not even give them more than 12 or 24 hours of capacity because they don't value that density. They value getting the part done as quick as possible. Even in some cases, it's interesting if you're a service provider, um, you might actually double. So you might need one part for the customer, but you'll send it to two printers just to have that redundancy. Uh, because you know, as you know, uh, even as reliability goes up, 3D printing is never perfect. Uh, any manufacturing process is never perfect, but having that capacity at your fingertips and being able to send parts through without taking on significantly more labor or cost is a really big game changer for companies when it comes to the reliability and being able to parallelize to decrease risk, if, if that makes sense.
0: For sure, absolutely you know, as we, again, continue to scale, you're always looking to be able to maximize what you can output and minimize the input, um, you know, especially on labor hours and, and financial costs and overhead that way. Um With that, you know, again, with that in mind, if you are kind of, can you interact with the printer as it's printing? You know, I know some printers, You know, you open the door and it pauses everything uh, and then you're you're at a not at a loss, but you have to then restart it and you might have some surface level imperfections. You know, what parts of the printer can you interact with? Can you take some builds out to be able to, uh, you know, take those off the build plates and then continue it back and just keep it rolling continuously? Or is there kind of like a stopping point where you have to let them run? They stop. You take everything out and then fix it back up again.
1: Yeah, it's a great question, and I, I think the the framing of your question is very much uh, from the perspective of what printing is. You know, the printers behind you, and and I, I often think that way as well. It's um, you know interacting with a printer on an individual basis, something that and I, I can't wait for you to come up to Toronto or, or to get for you to use yeah, it right for you. sure. And and something you'll you'll feel and see is it it really makes you think about three D printing differently. You don't you no longer think about an individual printer. Um, you really do start to think about it as a capacity. You just, you throw the job in through Canvas, our software. It asks you, do you want to print one? Do you want to print 30? Do you want to print 300? You send it through, um, and then you kind of lose track of which printer did it get sent to, um, because it's taking care of all that thinking for you. It's checking if you have enough filament of the right filament at the right printer. It's choosing which printer to to send it to. The robot is doing all that for you, such that um, it's no longer you going over to a printer to grab a part. It's you going to the back of the array, uh, which is kind of the safe side that as an operator you can interact with. There's no robotics or anything like that. And it's just which shelf on the storage cart is your part. And it'll actually show you on the screen. So it's like, okay, shelf L4 is, is this client's part. I'm going to grab it. Um, so yes, absolutely. The moment that print's done, the robot's putting it on the shelf for you, you can grab it and and go use it. It really is different than the, you know, uh, interacting with the printer, watching the first layer yourself, taking a little brush and cleaning the nozzle. We've had to overcome all of those manual steps that kind of incline you as a, as an operator to feel like you need to be involved. Um, part of scalability and automation is uh, even if it takes a bit longer for a startup process, building out these components of the system. For example, we have something called the densifier. It's more sophisticated than your usual like brush. Um, it actually lets you uh Uh, extrude filament into it, it densifies it into a blob, it moves it away from an entry into a a waste reservoir um, in a really dense way uh, so that, you know, you don't have to like go over with a brush and get rid of any leftover filament in the nozzle, helps clean the nozzle, get the print going. We also have, um, I think one of the first to bring to market a load cell based build plate, uh, meaning that when we're homing uh, to get, you know, a mesh of the bed surface, we're using the mechanical tip of the nozzle crashing into the bed very lightly to get a true uh, surface that is independent of, you know, a, a pin to probe or a wheel touch or how hot the bed is or how much glue you have or what surface, it's getting the true distance between the nozzle and the bed, meaning that Z offset calibration with paper, you know, sliding a gauge in there, oh, yeah. that's, you know, a thing of the past. And again, that, that's, that that is necessary for a system like Array, which is fully automated and really brings the barrier from an operator perspective much lower Um, Because you need to be able to load filament and grab your load filament into a material pod and grab your finished parts versus doing all those usual, uh, you know, steps that, that someone like you or I uh, would be used to doing when running a 3d printer.
0: I mean, I don't have to push paper underneath the nozzle anymore and, uh, you know, do all those preparatory things before I start a print, you know, that probably cut out at least 10 to 15 minutes per print, you know? Um, and, and, and some of these prints, like, you know, the, uh, with the Phil Innovations printer, obviously, you know, there is a little bit of, um, manual manipulation if we're going back and forth between different size nozzles, uh, a very quick and easy, um, you know, Z offset, but for some of these lower level printers, yeah, I have to constantly, um, you know, manipulate that because the, the, the bed sensing technology isn't as great. So, you know, it might be slightly bent over time and then it's going to be skewing some results of how the bed leveling is. And, uh. You know, being able to actually physically touch the the bed, you know, with the nozzle and getting that true depth, I would think would be a little bit more straightforward, right? I mean, has, um, has that been implemented on, on several other 3D printers now? I think I've heard of it maybe in passing, but...
1: It has, and there's no surprise there. I mean... There's, there's some good innovation that's coming in the market now. Um, I think there was a lot of stagnation for a while, and now we're seeing a lot of improvements. And, you know, it's getting past these pain points because I think there's been a saturation of, 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 of maybe um, engineering use cases. And as it pushes to sort of more broader creative uh, applications and companies, the industry needs to get past these this this notion that you have to be an expert to use a 3D printer. And so you know, uh, physical right. touch, um, uh, homing, more reliable extruders, better filaments, um, more integrated experiences where the expectation is that you put something in, hit go, and it works. Not you needing to be the person who does like a nine-step slicer setting calibration. Yeah. Um, but you know, it's. I think it's so many of the things that we've touched on already. For people who haven't been in 3D printing uh, for five or ten years, or even three years they likely have this notion that it's for experts, it's slow, it's expensive, it's not a production technology. Uh, And I think rightfully so, that was true. You add up all of these things from much more reliable systems that are not dependent on the subjectivity of an operator, um, making the the skill level lower, uh, the cost coming down, throughput going up, uh, significant amounts of automation, and you, you end up in this new paradigm uh, where 3D printing um, is is being used, it's not will be, is being used uh, in a broad range of production applications, pushing up to that, again, 20, 30, 40,000 piece uh, mark. Um, and I think we're in an exciting time in the industry where if somebody enters today, they will be a little bit blurred and confused by... Um, by by this transition phase in the market, but I think five years from now, uh, dominantly additive will be used as a production technology and it'll eclipse the prototyping and one-off applications, which for the past 30, 40 years have dominated the landscape and the narrative. So, you know, we're living through it right now. It's um, of course, from Mosaic's uh, perspective, we're we're helping drive that with the ecosystem of canvas and um, materials and the array system and the element 3D printer, Uh, But, you know, five years from now, I think that there will be a lot of players in the space because you're breaking out of the 18 or 15 to 18 uh, billion dollar 3D printing market. You're moving into that, you know, uh, 16 to 18 trillion dollar manufacturing space, which is so much bigger and broader. Uh, I think that that line between them is is really getting blurred.
0: Right. Yeah, we're in a we're in a new industrial revolution here. You know, we're in the we're in the additive manufacturing revolution, I think, you know, having that. You know, next level production status, uh, having more options for continuous printing. Um, you know, I'm also a distributor for Black Belt, uh, the, mm-hmm. the conveyor belt printer. So I'm already getting some ideas here with the uh, palette and Black Belt. And, uh, you know, maybe, you know, we can uh, see what comes up in terms of some collaborations with the array as well uh, in the future here. But I'm pretty excited about, you know, more automated level printing because to your point of, you know, being able to automate some of these steps that require a little bit more training, more specialized training to be able to, you know, dictate to someone else, um, of my nine years of 3d printing experience now, uh, exactly what to look for. And sometimes that's a little difficult, uh, to convey to someone like, oh, it's got to look this specific way. Right. But, uh, you know, in terms of like the slicing software that's out there right now, I think has a long way to go. Um, it's already coming up little by little every year, but, uh, you know, on the software side of things and then the hardware, a lot of these more specialized um, parts of the process can be can be automated. And it's awesome to see that you guys are, are helping to lead the way in that respect. Um, could you speak a little bit to, I guess, kind of the software that you've come up with to help some of this automation? And... Have you done anything specific with uh, just uh, name brand slicing or have you kind of created your own partial slicer as well?
1: Yeah, great question. So when we think about the software package, um, so we have a a cloud-based software called Canvas, Um, been developing it for, I think over seven years now, started with supporting multicolor with palette. But what we realized is that when we flash forward and we think about the importance of software in the workflow, it very much is the front end to everything because the robotics now take care of the back end of printing and all that. Um, It's really important that the software be a full experience. Slicing traditionally has been very dominant when we think 3D printing software, but it's kind of like a driver that runs in the background. Um, We think about an experience of bringing a file in and having uh, file management, project management, uh, getting in and preparing a file, doing that slice, but then that's kind of a blip in the process. sending it to the appropriate printer, monitoring, collecting data, keeping track of what materials are where, what build plates are where, um, that is all done right now in our Canvas software. So it really is, you know, whether you buy an element printer and you're doing desktop printing, uh, you know, prototype validation, or if you're using an array and you have to be managing, you know, somewhere between four and and, and over a hundred printers, uh, that entire experience is covered in the Canvas software. Um, and again, it's just one more chip away at, the reasons that people struggled five years ago to buy a hundred printers, put them on shelves and call it a factory. Uh, you know, if you're using a slicer and slicing and putting it on USB drives and trying to manage all of it, you know, going over with your paper to level the printers and remembering which one's on this firmware and that firmware, it I feel for those companies because they had the best intention and some of them were able to make it work, but for most of them, the costs were way higher than expected. The reliability was much lower. Um, and I think it was a great experiment to set up the you know um the opportunity for for array today and and the canvas software back to your question that effectively is powering the entire factory
0: yeah no that's that's awesome to hear i mean again in terms of automating the the slicing and setup process is something that i think is is very much needed um and then i think you spoke a little bit about some uh, monitoring of the prints, you know, during the print, um, does, does the array do any of that, uh, by, by camera or by other means right now?
1: It does. It does. And, um, we have a team continuing to work on this, um, philosophically, the way that we, we think about our products right now is, um, we're building an ecosystem and getting them into the market doesn't mean we stop working on them. In fact, it's kind of the beginning of focusing on reliability and using the products and the sensors that are there to create an even better experience. So I believe there's 11 sensors in each printer, uh, all the way from your load cells to your um, high precision uh, filament linear motion monitoring and printhead, humidity, uh, you name it, uh, looking at that data. Um, and then the camera and using that and some machine learning um, to be able to, with a high degree of confidence, identify risks or problems um, to give, again, give you confidence as an operator that you don't always have to be watching everything. Um, So yeah, that's a really important part of the system. And and like I said, um, something that we're gonna continue working on and pushing out so that those with arrays already, already today, those who are getting their array tomorrow, um, and those will have in five years. It'll constantly be getting better, and as we get more data, it, it reinforces the the algorithms and makes it more reliable. Um, you know, we are in the business of helping our customers print at high volumes reliably, and uh, if if we can push out a software update that helps make the equipment even more valuable, that's a win win for everybody. So that's kind of going to be our approach.
0: Right, for sure. Yeah, being able to continue to you know make the existing printers that are out there even better simply due to software or maybe some hardware tweaks is definitely you know interesting because you know these these printers at uh, some of the price tags they're at, you know you don't want them to be obsolete in just a few years and with how you know quickly this space is growing, you know some of these printers are already obsolete and they're already working on you know version five, uh, version nine. Um, so it's it's interesting to see kind of that development and how versatile some companies are being right now to you know be able to make those changes on the fly to existing printers. So that's great that you guys are thinking about that as well. Um, I know you know getting back to like the like the visual aspects of like seeing if a print is going wrong, right? Um, you know, I mentioned the cameras, we've got a couple cameras on, um, you know, some of our printers, just so I can look at, in from home. And, uh, you know, a few minutes down the road uh, from my office to see is a print messing up while well, I should go, you know, get out of bed and uh, uh, drive down and and try to stop it before it, you know, wreaks havoc or, you know, gives me a bird's nest. So, Um, you know, are there, are there any specific, you know, pinpoints in the software there that identify problems that are going on potentially? Um, I know some companies are starting to look at this, like uh, I believe AI build, um, is one software company doing more so non-planar 3d printing, but with robotic arms, um, you know, is there, is there anything like that currently in the software or something similar?
1: There is, there is. Yeah. I, um, our culture has always been to, um, under-promise and over deliver so we don't like to uh, announce things until they're 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 you know very close to, to to coming out so I won't I won't say too much about the specifics but um <clears throat> at a minimum uh the ability to notify you hey go check printer 46 um we think there's a, a likely is- a high likelihood of an issue the other ones are very low like you don't need to look at them so in your exact example from home you pop into canvas you pull up the camera feed or you look at the exact notification It might say, you know, um, filament extrusion was 10% less than it should have been for the last 10 minutes. Something's mm-hmm. probably wrong. Um, maybe there was an imperfection or, or the nozzle got clogged or something like that. Um, and then you can you can look at it and then taking it one step further and actually cancel the print. Have the robot remove the build plate, put a fresh one in, change out to a new spool of filament and run the print again. very you, right? you go. So, yeah You know, we always want to be careful that, you know, we don't false, we don't have a false positive. We don't cancel a a print that's good, maybe using peak filming, which is incredibly expensive. Um, So um, finding that balance so that as a user, you have the permission setting ability to decide what what actions you'd like to be taken in certain cases. Um, But when there is a failure, um, the ability to as quickly as possible recover, that's again, a huge part of that uptime. Because Sure, a printer can be used 100% of the time when it's, uh, if some of they're always running it, um, but realistically, no one is there running it. And so when something jams or breaks, if you have that single point of failure on your system, you can, you can, you know, have a lot of downtime, but thanks to the ability for a ray to detect that and actually recover itself, um, that goes a huge way in addition to just changing out build plates.
0: Yeah, no, that's, that's definitely a huge step in the right direction for, you know, print monitoring and, making sure that we're not wasting too much material or, you know, having that false positive, which I'm sure, you know, percentage wise is going to happen. Right. Um, But, you know, hopefully a a less percentage than the number of prints that, you know, just go wrong and it's a 60 hour print and you're done an hour 50 uh, because something went wrong. So, um, you know, that's, that's cool to hear. Uh, So what do you think, uh, not slightly off topic here, but kind of on topic still of the slicing um, you know, what do you think about having a slicer that will more so take a look at your part, analyze it for printability? Um, you know, right now the slicers that are out there right now, uh, they might maybe indicate color wise if you have an overhang angle potentially, but unless you actually visibly, visibly look at that thing and know what you're looking for. You might not know what to change on the back end. Uh, so this is kind of just a more general question. But what do you think of of that uh, kind of machine learning that goes into the slicing techniques and slicing software that's out there?
1: I think it's incredibly important. I think there's so many of these building blocks that are that are incredibly important. And when we think about that that upstream process of CAD and design and assets, even upstream one level more of a model being brought into a slicer. What about rich assets so that somebody can can take a free course or um, you know uh, ideally even learn it in school about design for additive manufacturing, right? Because I don't think we have to be apologetic for the fact that there is a way to design a part that'll print more reliably, be stronger, be lower cost, all those important things, just like if you're gonna CNC machine part, you're not gonna have blind pockets. Um, that can't be reached by a tool. If you're going to injection mold apart, you're gonna have constant wall thickness. Most manufacturing processes have incredibly stringent constraints that we're quite used to. But in the world of 3D printing, I think sometimes the thought is like, oh, like you should be able to print anything. And with support material and all that you can, but that doesn't mean that there isn't um, a worthwhile exercise in design for manufacturing. Once you get one level past that, brilliant. I love that. I think there's a few companies working on it um taking you know labeled data sets of models that printed well and didn't print well um, on the mosaic side you know we're we're building um, interfaces so that you can tell the print the printer uh, if your last print went well what went wrong and and we'll certainly look to leverage that data for for things of this nature um, an interesting pattern that i've seen that was maybe we should have anticipated but when somebody's using array there are use cases where they will print you know uh, 200 different models in a day on the system but very often it's bulk production. Um, whether it be for student projects, we're sure each one is different, but generally they're in like the same volume, same same base model, depending on what the project was. But then in production applications, if someone needs, you know, 60 cable harnesses or, you know, uh, 4,000 um, L brackets, uh, typically what they'll do is they'll print one, one full build plate, they'll monitor it or maybe 10. Um, and if they find any issues, they're likely gonna find it in those 10. Maybe it's that they need to add a brim or a skirt or ch- try a different orientation. Um, and so you kind of do get this learning in that first uh, print, and then if those first ten go well, there's a good chance the next, you know, 500 are going to go well as well. So right. um, the, the the kind of good news there is that you can leverage the expertise of of somebody who's on the design side and getting the start the print started, and then once you achieve that success, typically it's that scaling part that a rake can say, "All right, leave it to me. I'll I'll, I'll take care of this." Um, it's it's not quite as bad as you might expect where every single part needs a lot of attention, if, if you know what I mean. Even in your world, sure, an anatomically customized um, lower limb socket or, or, or foot orthotic is slightly different. But generally speaking, you're going to be able to template uh, the, the slicer settings, the orientation, those best practices, and, and that would apply on, on Array as well.
0: Right, right. Yeah. Design for additive manufacturing is is a term and, you know, idea and, and way of thinking that I've been trying to instill into a lot of my customers because, again, people are just learning about 3D printing and, and some are just getting uh, used to looking at CAD software and figuring out how to go from that, you know, positive limb shape scan to a, a negative, you know, uh, design that we can 3d print. So, you know, that's definitely something, uh, that we're trying to help along with, with some of our, you know, in-house trainings and education on different printers and software. So, uh, we're, we're trying to help, you know, lead the way in that respect and, uh, you know, just push that forward because again, with what I was mentioning at the beginning of this episode, you know, the, uh, 3d printing, something that's definitive in nature, something that's going to be used on a patient for a long period of time. You know, we want to make sure is as robust as possible from, you know, our background knowledge in physics and engineering and our clinical expertise and what we see works on a patient with, you know, similar, um, similar attributes that that patient is showing. So, um, I guess on, on that note as well, you know, how have you been involved with the onp industry if if at all now got to got to have a little bit of onp flair to this as well
1: absolutely yeah so i mean uh, preaching to the choir here you know this just as well as i do but um you know a very important space when it comes to patient outcomes and how it can impact so many parts of um Uh, a a, a person's health and therefore it's no surprise that it almost seems like you know one in every three or two in every three people wear a foot orthotic Um, and if we look at the central fabrication um, adoption of new technology in the way that so many of them are still making orthotics um, it's it's proven it works but it's very laborious Um, you know cnc milling uh, thermoforming band sawing sanding A lot of them that I've spoken to are really struggling with scalability. They're struggling to find labor. It's not general labor. It's like very specialized, almost on the edge of art uh, to to do this type of production. And you're starting with the digital input. A lot of them have adopted scanning, but then it's kind of still going to this subjective hand-done process. Um, It's pretty wasteful. It can be pretty slow. Um, So the idea of going from digital scan to 3D printing, there's been some really great HP's done work in the space. Um, there's a few other players, but the cost incentives haven't been that great. Um, there's a huge capital expenditure to buy these large printing systems. And the cost per part, because the consumables are a bit expensive, is still quite high. Um, so what we've been able to do with the Array system is, you know, I'll, I'll hold up here a, an orthotic um, that uh, is able to be customized, printed uh, in just a couple hours, Uh, So the Array system is able to do these very cost effectively, usually in the roughly $15 per pair all in, um, which, you know, can put the power in the hands of a practitioner or um, at the central fab level because of the automation of Array can trivially let them get more capacity. Yes, you still need labor. People need to run the systems, process the files, but there's amazing software out there like the printed foot um, and, and many others to be able to do that. So what you end up with is helping companies see fabs really get that full digital experience that helps them scale as businesses um, leads to better patient outcomes because we have a more repeatable outcome that's digitally defined, uh, should pass cost savings onto them, making it more accessible. So there's really a ton of good stuff going on. We're going to be at AOPA um, in, uh, in I believe, September, uh, looking to meet with lots of other folks in the industry. And this is an exciting one. I think it's, it's high impact. And I think that we can overcome this perceived barrier of hugely expensive equipment, very complicated to use, very locked down and not huge cost benefits to a system like Array, where it can be deployed for well under hundred grand, um, which is like five times less than, than other systems uh, can be printing parts that are vastly lower cost than um, any other printing method or the manual method and really help companies get that entire experience end to end.
0: Right. Yeah. Having, having that ability to, again, uh, just scale up production for um, you know, some of what we're seeing in the prosthetics and orthotics field, with um, lowering reimbursement rates from insurance companies and higher costs of of you know providing care, um, are really kind of squeezing the um, you know the emphasis on the fabrication. How we are actually making these devices. Um, when it comes down to you know minimizing our costs, it's really in that labor cost. Um, aspect of things on the fabrication side of things, but also you know the the amount of time that is spent uh, with a particular patient. So being able to go into a digital workflow has been you know very helpful in that respect. Um, you know, going from 3D scanning through modifying something in a digital software and uh, moving towards 3D printing has definitely shown to be extremely cost effective in a lot of different ways so um, we're pretty, you know, fortunate to again be in the space to to help lead that charge, and uh, you know, again, find more use cases for different types of printers um, and solutions that um, you know better affect some of these devices that we're putting out. So, such as foot orthotics. You know, we're um, we are providing foot orthotics uh, through Ascent Fab and uh, using a number of different materials. You know, having that process be a little bit more automated to scale that production is something that we're you know looking to. Uh, definitely get involved in. Um, have you had, you know, actually uh, an array implemented within the field yet or uh, or not quite yet?
1: Yeah, so we're at an exciting phase after five years of developing all of the technology. Um, we're just closing out a pilot program right now, which has a bunch of arrays uh, out, some in the US, some in Canada, and then a bunch more of the Element desktop printers, um, using uh, all the feedback, implementing new features, improvements, reliability fixes, you name it. Uh, we always believe that great products are built you know, alongside great great end users rather than just guessing what, what people want to do. Um, and uh, in parallel, we're, we're ramping up uh, or near the end of ramping up production. We're actually making Array and Element in Canada, uh, which is exciting and, and sort of um uh, living the the vision of many of our customers and in and you know uh, bringing manufacturing onshore um, and so uh, a little bit later this year um, big backlog of, of of early investors in Array and Element are going to get their printers and uh, several in in O and P uh, and then you know we're we're really expecting to scale up from there something we find oftentimes is um, you know a company will say hey uh, you know I want to start with two arrays. Uh, and then as I prove at the economics a few months later, I'd like to scale up to six or eight or whatever it is. So, um, you know, the fact that Array is inherently being bought for production, it, it, it plays really nicely into uh, the business model of being able to help companies scale. And as they win, we win. Um, right. There's also another aspect that I actually, where I thought um, your, your question was going before, um, you know, the specialization of applications. Something we see is that there can be a disconnect between a truly compelling digital manufacturing application and someone just buying a bunch of printers, whether even you know, if it's array and, and if they're in ecosystem material and software. And it's that middle step of figuring out how to implement it, figuring out how to do that design for manufacturing to get things more lean, get the cost down. Um, and sometimes it's it's like basic stuff like that. Sometimes it's a lot more sophisticated. You know, Maybe it's developing a special print head or making a filament that's really hard to print reliable. So we've built out a group called Mosaic Solutions And it's effectively meant to act as a consultant uh, to some of our our most compelling customers where they can effectively get members of our team to work with them for a period of time uh, on their exact application. And we usually do it when it's strategic, when it'll kind of help open up an industry or really help our customer. Um, So we have a few of those projects going on right now. One of them is actually in the textile space. So my my shirt that I'm wearing right now, um, this is actually printed with an adhesive, can be attached to the garment and developing those materials uh, and that process really took. I think it's been five full-time applications engineers in the Mosaic team for a significant amount of time. But you know, it can unlock hundred million dollar industries for, for 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 different customers. So, um, right. you know, if 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 customers if companies do have uh, applications that they're looking to scale and uh, and and they feel that barriers, maybe lack of expertise, um, there's companies like Mosaic who have Mosaic solutions and uh, other consultancies out there that can really help get that done. And I think that's going to be a really important enabler, just like how in the automation world, you have um, tech integrators who really help bridge that gap. Uh, I think that um, we need to see more of that on the additive side to help bridge the gap between compelling application and technology.
0: Right, right. Yeah, having that... You know, again, that design for additive manufacturing approach and being able to talk with people intelligently about how to bring an idea or a product to that production level status, I think is something that's still being, um, you know, further investigated in terms of, you know, different companies are going to approach that different ways, um, you know, how they want to produce an object. So, you know, being able to work with a team like yours on that is definitely very, very helpful when a, um, a company is looking into purchasing an array. Um, you know, or multiple arrays, you know, that's definitely an exciting, uh, exciting aspect to think about. So, um, well, yeah, with that, uh, with all that being said, you know, with, um, you know, the different applications that array and palettes, let's not, uh, uh, you know, forget about palette we talked about earlier, Uh, might want to talk to you a little bit more about that later. Um, yeah, you know, with all these different applications, you know, it sounds like you guys are really at the helm of, um, you know, leading that charge into automation. So, you know, kudos to you guys for for taking that on. And, uh, you know, I'm really excited to see the progression uh, in the ONP field that Array might have, um, as well as helping to maybe be able to support that. And then, you know, see what other industries you guys get into, because it's really exciting stuff. Um, you know, again, just kind of uh, scratching the surface to automation and some of the um, you know more hands-off approach that we could have to some of these printers. So that's that's awesome to see that you guys are leading that charge. Um, you know, what's the uh, what's the best way for people to contact you to get a hold of part of your team and to learn more about the array?
1: Yeah, um, always open to have conversations. I love engaging with the community. So um, easiest way, feel free to message me directly on LinkedIn. Uh, Mitch, DeBora, um, D-E-B-O-R-A, give me an ad, let me know you heard the podcast and, and want to chat about anything. If, if I'm the right person, can can speak to you. If you have any questions about product, can connect you to a product expert, mosaicmfg.com, like mosaicmanufacturing.com. Um, can learn a ton about Array, Element, Palette, Canvas. Canvas is free, so you can, um, you, you can use it, uh, try it out. It's a slicer that works with most printers. Um, there are some paid features when you get up to array, but uh, for most people, they'd be able to give it a try and, and sort of get value from it right away for free. And uh, yeah, um, really appreciate you having me on the on the podcast. And um, hopefully, I'll see you. Will I see you at AOPA? Uh,
0: yeah, we're we're taking a look at at September to see how the next couple months go. Um, I've been I've been thinking about it. There's going to be a lot of digital aspects to uh, AOPA's conference this year. Uh, I know last year it was huge uh just kind of ex- exponentially grew from what it had been years before um so that's definitely exciting to see that you know more and more people are getting interested or more companies coming to uh the PNO field for these conferences so yeah, yeah we'll take a look and see uh if we don't see you then in September uh I'll definitely make it out to Toronto here soon to try to um come check out your um your lab there with uh, all the different arrays going so yeah we'll definitely get in touch soon and, uh, you know, good luck there at, at Aopa if we if we don't see you. But are there any other uh, conferences this year that you guys are looking to be at?
1: Yeah, there, there's a few. So we'll um, we'll be at Aopa. We'll, we'll have a raise there and the team and samples and everything. So that'll be a full display. We're going to be at the CMTS, Canadian Manufacturing Technology Show um, out in, in Toronto, also in September. And then we will be at Form Next. Germany later in the year, again, always having arrays and elements out there, printing live on the show floor. So a awesome. great uh, time to connect and uh, and and for people to see the technology.
0: Very cool. Very cool. Well, yeah, Formnext is definitely on my list as well. <laughs> Getting out to Germany there at some point. So, um, well, thanks again, Mitch, for uh, taking the time out of your day today to go over uh, everything, the, the palette, canvas, um, and array here uh, with all the elements inside of it. So you know, great stuff, you know, looking forward to seeing what you guys do here in the future and looking forward to, uh, you know, collaborating with you guys in some way, shape or form. Um, But thank you everyone for uh, tuning into today's Fabrication Friday podcast. Uh, That's it for this week. Tune in next week uh, for more awesome 3D printing stuff. All right. Have a good one. Thank you.